Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 10 years of law enforcement analysis experience. His experience with the Ohio National Guard, the Ohio Air National Guard, and the Ohio Bureau of Workers Comp. He's founded and runs his own company, ESSE, and he's here to talk about threat assessments. Please welcome Steve Bennett. Steve, how are we doing? Jason, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. <laughs> All right. Excellent. We got a lot to go over here. I think you are going to bring a different perspective than maybe some of the other guests I've had on this show. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, first, I hope it's different in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Neither bad nor good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, gosh. I'll have to start with a little bit of a cliffhanger. I found the profession at a funeral. I was in a cemetery and there was an interesting sequence of events that just sort of led me down a path that led me to that exact moment where I was in the right place at the right time in a cemetery that led me into this profession. So I've always been sort of like interested in the world and geography, like as a kid, I loved where in the world is Carmen San Diego and <laughs> that sort of noir detective thing, trying to figure out what's going on and just learning geography and grew up. I, I love James Bond movies and spy films, spy novels, anything that has to do with like secrets or finding things, treasure maps, scavenger hunts, hide and seek. But that was all my jam when I was a kid. And so I think I'm 35 now. And so that means I was in the eighth grade, I think when 9-11 happened. And I had a sister living in New York at the time. And I, I like like so many people, it, it affected so many people who who were there and who remember 9-11 in many different ways. For me, having a sister in New York City, that is, it especially touched home. I mean, I, I was pulled from school. I remember sitting three, four feet from the TV screen, just watching everything unfold. And I remember just being very thoughtful and contemplative and, and, and just sort of engrossed in, in the spectacle of this disaster. And I remember everyone's reactions to it. And I remember how uneasy people felt, how, how, how much fear or anxiety there was just in and among America. And I remember September 12th. And I remember how unified the country was or how unified the country can be. And I, I think I was always sort of on that course to maybe sort of work with other people and work in the government. But I mean, happening or me witnessing 9-11, I think in the eighth grade, and then the quote unquote, the 9-11 wars or Iraq and Afghanistan sort of happening really over the past 20 years. Th those are really my formative years, high school into college. And that had a huge effect on me. So I really just wanted to find something that was interesting to me. And it made people feel safe because, again, I remember that fear, that anxiety, that uncertainty, that feeling of not being safe all the way back from 9-11. So I wanted something in public safety, something along those lines. But again, I was interested in like the rest of the world. So I graduated from high school and went into college just like everyone else did. 
And I declared my major as international studies, specializing in security and intelligence. And that was at Ohio State. And Ohio State, the uh, international studies program, it turns out it's a really uh, robust program. They got like 10 or 11 different specializations. Half of them are regions of the world. You could specialize in Latin America or Eastern Europe, for example. And then the other half are just sort of global issues. So mine was a global issue. It's security and intelligence. I'll be honest with you, Jason, I, I was not ready for school. I was never really a good student. I, I had someone tell me once that I, I had a sailor's report card. And no offense to any, to, and no offense to any sailors, but I, I, I had seven C's. And so, yeah, I, I was just never a great student. There was some stuff going on in my personal life at the time. And a lot of my financial backing sort of went out the window so I, I left school. I, I left school and student loans came out of deferment and started paying on those. And I just got a job just like anyone else. I, I was working for Sega, which sort of owned and operated like a big arcade and restaurant and bar, kind of like a Dave and Buster's sort of deal. Mm-hmm. And did that for about two years when one of the assistant general managers or something of the restaurant, he told me, he, he like sat me down <laughs> and just gave me some guidance that I think I was... I was desperately needing. He was, I think, pushing 50. And he said, Steve, you're not going to be one to be doing this when you're my age. And I just sort of took that in and thought about it. And I said, you know what? I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to get back to what I started. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of the, se- the se- series of events where that sort of led me down this path to what I'm doing now. Um, I wanted to get back to what I started, get back in school, finish my degree, work closer and closer and closer to that that sort of public safety sort of career. So I joined the Ohio National Guard. I joined the Army National Guard, and that was in 2010. So I was 22 at that point. I joined the National Guard, and within a few months, I was hired on as a like civilian employee for the National Guard. So my Monday through Friday job was working as a civilian for the National Guard in the finance office. I was doing like audits and making sure people get paid on time, that sort of stuff. But I got that job because I got a good reference just from the military side of things. Doing that drill, going to drill one weekend a month, someone, his name was David Yeoman. He was like my first NCO, my first sergeant, Sergeant David Yeoman. He put in a good reference for me and said, hey, he'd be a good employee. So I got set up with an interview, got that job and worked that job for about three years just in the finance office for the National Guard. But during that time, one, there there was a sergeant major who worked on the floor above me and he was making the rounds and he was looking at just some of the people who work in the office. And he knew that I was actually in the guard. I'm not just strictly a civilian. And he asked me if I wanted to join the honor guard, do parades and flag ceremonies and funerals. So you can sort of see the connection here to the cemetery. So I said, sure, I'll do that too. Why not? So I did some honor guard stuff for a few years. Just as needed, I would go do funerals for veterans and fold the flag and present it to the next of kin. And that sort of led me to, let's see, about 2013, late 2013. It was winter, maybe November or December. It was cold. It it was uh, snowy, big, fluffy snowflakes. I was doing a two-person detail for a funeral, and we're waiting for the funeral procession to arrive, and I'm talking to her, this this other soldier, and she's talking to me about what I'm doing and w- what I'm going for in school. At this point, I'd gone back to school, 
again, that's why I joined the National Guard. It just had the most benefits I could use the most immediately. So I was back in school, sort of taking one or two classes at a time and doing this National Guard thing and drill and working as a civilian employee. And when I mentioned that I was working towards a degree in security and intelligence, she said, really? Because my full-time job, aside from all this honor guard stuff, is working on the National Guard's counter-drug task force. And I said, well, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) And then the funeral procession arrived. (laughs) So I had to like, yeah, yeah, so timeout, I had to sort of store that thought in the back of my mind. And we had to do the whole funeral and play taps and fold the flag and present it to the next of kin. And everyone had left and we were peeling off our gloves and taking off our hat and everything. And I I brought up that point again. I said, hey, you mentioned the counter-drug task force. What's that? And she explained to me what she specifically did was more on the prevention side of drug abuse. She was involved with like community coalitions and stuff. But she said, by and large, the vast majority of National Guardsmen on the counter-drug program are crime analysts. They work for the National Guard at civilian law enforcement agencies, and they kind of work as an as an intelligence analyst. And I said, that sounds really cool. How can I get on that? She said, well, let me talk to someone. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I was set up for an interview. I interviewed, I think, in like maybe January or February timeframe, and I started with the counter-drug program in February of 2014, and that was my first job as an intel analyst at a law enforcement agency. So that's sort of how I got to the career and how I sort of found out about it, just the sort of series of events. And and really, that's the whole reason I joined the National Guard. I wanted to get back to what I was doing, get back in school, get in the right crowd, and so far, so good. Quite a story. You had me on the edge of my seat because you started (laughs) with the funeral you went to 9-11 and started talking about your sister, and that's right where my head went. I was like, oh, he's at his sister's funeral kind of thing. Like, oh. That's that's where I like I went. I wonder how many of our listeners thought the same thing. So I, I think it's interesting your journey here, because when you were in high school, when we're 17, 18 years old, we're, we're asked to to go out on our own and set out this path to do. And I, I'm oh, a big believer in that college isn't for everybody. Military isn't for everybody. Trade schools aren't for everybody, but they are right for certain people, all those things. And so I think from your perspective, it's interesting because you go to school and it's it doesn't work out the way you think. And it's a setback. And So that decision to leave school had to be a tough one, right? And then you go and have some maybe a little bit serendipitous. You talk to your manager there that corrects your path, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then you join the National Guard at 22. And and am I wrong to think that probably you're 22 and the rest of the people that are joining the National Guard at that time are 18? Yeah, I, I was on the old, I was on the older side, not the oldest. We did have a forty-one-year-old in my basic training <laughs> platoon. We called him Private Moses. Yeah, but yeah, I was on the older side at twenty-two. Yeah, so that's different, and it can make you feel self-conscious. 
right? Oh, is yeah. I think is what I'm getting at. And I think this is might be a little bit more of a, maybe it's an American trait. I don't know, but I think we're too tough on our failures, but we should all realize that it's all a learning experience, right? And yeah, you, yeah, learn yeah, by do, you learn by doing, right? And some it's not always going to be pristine, game-winning shot, first try, get everything right. It's not always going to be pretty. Yeah, and that was a tough lesson, I think, for me to learn. I, I had, so those first few years when I started college, before I left, I was doing naval ROTC. I was uh, I was going to be a naval intelligence officer. That was the goal. That was the dream. See the world and do intel and all that. But I, I was doing it as an extracurricular. I was not being paid to do it. I was not on scholarship from the Navy to be doing that. It, it was just something extra on top of my already, uh, on top of my own challenges with school. And some of my best friends, I, I got two best friends. I've been best friends with them since like swim lessons when we were three and four years old. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm serious. And uh, two of my best friends, they're twins. They both went to ROTC program and, and it, it was really sort of tough when I saw them get their commissions and graduate on time. And, and even now they're both still in their active duty army and they're out doing army things and they're being paid <laughs> as an officer and they're doing officer things. And that was, that's still something that I never really accomplished, but I, I was chipping away at my degree. I, I, I came back to school several times, just sort of doing it one or two classes at a time. And so sometimes I would even go a semester or two taking no classes just because it just didn't work with my schedule. And I, I always sort of had a chip on my shoulder. I'm, I'm an international studies major, but I can't really go do a study abroad because I'm in the National Guard. And I got to be in Ohio one weekend a month for drill and mm -hmm. seeing it was really tough. If you're in school long enough, you'll see you'll meet people as freshmen and then you'll see them graduate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and you're still working on it. So yeah, I, it took me, I did finally get my bachelor's degree in 2018, just chipping away on it slowly, but surely. And it got to the point where I didn't really need it so much. I was already working as we discussed as an analyst, but I always saw it as a, as a disadvantage that all these other people just get their degree and get out and go out into the world and do great things. And here I am trudging along and it wasn't really until the last year or two of school, that final stretch, maybe 2016, 2017 even, where I really began to see how all my work experience and all the experience from the military, I can actually bring that into the classroom. And it's not a disadvantage. I actually have a huge advantage just in school. And it, it, took, a, it, it took a very long time for me to sort of realize that it's not a race it's a journey and my journey was worth having. Yeah. You did it your own way, which is, I yeah. think is, is important and a little bit of the lesson learned that there is multiple paths to the same destination. And yeah. I, I, I find it fascinating. I was just talking, it was Nikki North on the podcast and how when you're going through this process, maybe it's always something where it's early adulthood, early 20s, and you have these two sets of people, one that are, one folks are going through college and maybe the other one don't have college but are in, in the workforce. And it seems that both of them are wanting what the other one has or is working on. 
right? If you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're, if you don't have that degree and you're working, you're getting real life experiences, but that, that idea of not having a degree can chip away at you and mm-hmm. something that you'll yearn to have. And then when you're in college and you're going through all these classes, you yearn to have some real world experience. So when you go out to the job force, it's not just, hey, I know how to read a book, take a test and write a paper. And it it is this balancing act between the two as you get into your mid-20s that you have to somehow resolve between Mm -hmm. getting practical experience and getting the education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's. It's a challenge. And I, I think right now with this job market, people are looking for people, but the job market comes and goes. And, and there's always mm-hmm. that problem where you need experience to get the job, but you can't get the job because you don't have experience, <laughs> because you don't have experience sort of this like cyclical problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I sometimes I get asked, you know, how did you get into this profession? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of people who would like to get into the, into this or something like this, something in Homeland Security or public safety or something like that. And the best thing that I can tell them is just work on getting closer. Don't focus on the finish line, focus on the next step and you'll be there before you know it. If you are, if you are consistently getting closer and closer, maybe you go take this class, maybe you attend this webinar, maybe you get hired as a records clerk or something Mm -hmm. at a law enforcement agency, start somewhere, just get closer. You, you got to think of it in, 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 in inches, not in miles. And as you get incrementally closer, I mean, before long, I mean, you'll just, you'll be a shoe in You'll, you'll be happier and happier with every uh, step closer. Yeah. Hmm. So let's, let's go on to the national guard and talk a little bit about that, because I think yeah. some folks that I remember working with folks from the national guard during my time with the Washington Baltimore Haida. And Mm -hmm. so I knew that there was these analysts that were in the National Guard that worked narcotics investigations. So I am familiar with it, but I think the general audience may not be familiar with this. So maybe let's just go over, just generally speaking, how the National Guard fits into the overall maybe narcotics investigations in Ohio. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. It's kind of wonky. Like, what is the military doing here in my local law enforcement? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and why, why is there an analyst? Yeah, it, it's kind of weird. There are many, many analysts throughout the whole nation who are sort of in this situation. They work for the National Guard's counter-drug program. Many people often work with them, not even realizing they're actually there at the law enforcement agency on the National Guard's payroll. Their their paycheck is coming from the Department of Defense. So what's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great question. So you, you almost have to think of the National Guard as 54 different National Guards, 50 states and four territories, and they each have their own counter-drug program. And it's a part of the National Drug Control Policy to implement the whole of government resources. And there is, I forget the exact title, the Undersecretary of Defense for, I believe, counter-narcotics. <laughs> so the, there is a part of the Department of Defense that that does this sort of thing. And that's sort of where we get direction from in, in, in the National Guard. Um, 
so each state has their own program and and their needs are sort of based on demand and risk to that particular state. Ohio is last time I checked was on the the bigger side as far as programs go. They're yielding results and good results and the drug threat is high. So they tend to get more funding, not not the most funding. Uh, I I would have to imagine that many border states or people with big drug inter- interdiction issues uh, do, do get more funding. But yeah, it, it is on the bigger side. So Ohio has a very robust program. We had, when I left the counter drug program in 2022, yeah, I believe we had close to 50 analysts in the whole state. And again, they're embedded with civilian law enforcement agencies. And that's something that's unique that the National Guard can do that the reserves and the active duty military cannot do. Then that's because the National Guard is state controlled under United States Code Title 32. The federal military under United States Code Title 10 cannot engage in domestic law enforcement like this. So it's a unique position for the National Guard and through the way that the United States Code is written, that allows the National Guard to do this, to use these quote-unquote state assets to do this mission to assist law enforcement. We're not acting as law enforcement. I think that's a very important point. We're, we're not door kickers or, or we're, not, we're not putting hands on suspects or we have no authority to detain anyone. We are working as analysts, by and large, to assist law enforcement in everything that a crime analyst or intelligence analyst w- would do. So at a high level view, that's sort of what the program is. So let's get into some of the stuff that you're, you were doing specifically. So you, yeah. you get there, you're, as you said, around 2014, what kind of tasks are you doing? Where, maybe where you're located, where you're part like of a multi-jurisdictional uh, authority or what, what, what just kind of sure. describe, describe the position. Yeah. So everything that we do had to be drug related. Um, so we were all, we, I was working narcotics, uh, and I trained up at, um, at a height of funded task force for like just two or three months just to work with a very experienced analyst and learn, learn the job because it was all new to me. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of package interdiction and the packages would come in and they would get processed and I would assist by taking photos or entering the information into a database seeing, does it connect to anything else? Where was the courier going? Where were they coming from? All that stuff that you do with narcotics. But I was only there for like three months getting trained up. But I mean, that, that was a heck of an eye-opening experience for someone who's never done this before. I, I think one day on the job when I was there for those three months, canine alerted to a Xerox machine, like a big like office <laughs> Xerox <laughs> machine. There were drugs apparently hidden inside. And the detectives handed me a hatchet. <laughs> oh, man. And they said, all right, you're going to help us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, Toner is not supposed to be white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we put on all the PPE and everything, and uh, we went all all office space on it. <laughs> and just beat, beat the crap out of this thing and opened it up and got these bundles of weed and uh, I think some black tar heroin out. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean... It, very eye-opening experience. And uh, so before long, I got to go to the Highway Patrol's intelligence unit. That was just a few months later there in 2014. And I worked at the Highway the Highway Patrol's intelligence unit for almost two years. 
and what a place to learn to be an analyst. It was rigorous. It, it was fast paced. It was uh, in Ohio. That's the only 24 seven intelligence unit for law enforcement. It's like an intel call center, and it's available 24-7. It's staffed 24-7. You would work something. If you don't get it done by the end of your shift, you pass it on to the next shift, and it would pro it would usually be done by the next morning. So fast turnaround times, and you work whatever comes in. You kick it back out, and you usually don't hear how it turned out or how it impacted the investigation, which I think is a normal problem for <laughs> intel analysts to not yeah. get some feedback. Uh, but when you're working in that kind of environment where it's like an Intel call center, really, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think that's especially prevalent to not hear how it turned out or how useful uh, what you worked on was. So, yeah, I did that for almost two years. Again, just fast paced, churn and burn before long. We had a so the Highway Patrol had a couple analysts on special assignments who were not like physically in this 24-7 Intel unit. They were out doing other things. And one of them was working in what the Highway Patrol calls criminal patrol. That's like the plainclothes task force officers. The they, they do the interdiction and they do all the investigations and everything with drug interdiction and everything that goes along with that, the bulk cash and human trafficking, everything. We had one analyst assigned to one trooper in particular, and that one analyst... I believe got hired on as a manager at a Haida out West. I think one of the Haidas in California. Mm -hmm. And I asked if, if I could go, if I could fill in, if, if I could go do that. And to my surprise, they agreed. And I thought that was really cool. Like I'm not even their employee and they're trusting me to like, go do this. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm already working for the military, but I don't work in my uniform. I don't work with anyone from the military. So I've basically have no oversight from my employer. <laughs> I have no oversight from the military. And then for the, for the highway patrol to send me somewhere where I have no oversight from the Intel unit. <laughs> I mean, I was really on my own, you know, just me and this trooper, but that, that was a cool experience. And it's like the complete opposite of the Intel unit. Like, yeah, of course I'm still doing Intel, but now I'm working cases start to finish. And I have essentially one customer. And I just work all of her cases. And, and that was a really cool experience. That was a really cool experience. So that lasted about 20, like late 2015 to about 2017. So, yeah. Sure. So well, I guess what, what are you seeing at this point in time? Because it's, as you said, you're, you're, you're doing a lot, a little bit of fast pace, getting to more case support, but you really have your, you're out and about. Right. When I talk to a lot of analysts, they're behind a desk, they're behind a computer, they're not out and about the office. And so I'm curious in terms of patterns and trends that you're seeing during this time. Yeah. Yeah. With Criminal Patrol, I was definitely out and about more than when I was at the Intel unit. Whenever my trooper had to go interview someone, and typically it would be someone who got pulled over, canine alerted, then the probable cause search yielded some drugs or money or something. And then they needed interviewed by my investigator that I was supporting. So that's typically how I would get involved. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, yeah, I, I would go out there and do the interview with them. Well, not with them. There were very strict rules where <laughs> being being with the National Guard, you can't like have contact with the suspects. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I would sit in the same room and take notes <laughs> or I would be doing that real time Intel as the suspect is talking. I would be verifying details. And there have been a couple of times where I found something or found an inaccuracy or a lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would just sort of pivot my laptop over to my trooper and point, and say, hey, t- take a look at this. And uh, she, she was very, very smart, very savvy. She would pick up on what I was uh putting down and Mm -hmm. she would go back and she would ask the suspect about that. So yeah, that was very cool. I would still say by and large, I was definitely in the office more, but I was definitely out of the office more than when I was at the Intel unit. So yeah, it was definitely uh, interesting times. Uh, I think that was the first time I got to go on a search warrant. Yeah. Which is always cool, right? Yeah, always cool. Different and different, totally different experience. I think that's really what it's about. We talked about all this different way of gaining experiences is just being being exposed to these different events and what you get out of it as as you just see and learn and observe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, a lot of vehicle interdiction, a lot of vehicle concealments and all the sort of trends that go along with that. It's all some interesting stuff, really weird places you can hide drugs in a vehicle. <laughs> really weird yeah. places. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, or at least get your perspective on, if you don't know this outright, is th- if if somebody is interested in being an intelligence analyst, being a crime analyst, is one pretty straightforward path is you could join the National Guard and p- be put into this path to something similar that you experienced? Or is this something that it's pretty highly competitive, it's really difficult to get into being an, an analyst like you? Hmm. Well, I think the it, it, once you're in the National Guard, I think that's the biggest challenge is getting in the National Guard. I mean, to be able to get into the military, mm-hmm. you got to be physically fit. You, you got to be mm-hmm. qualified to do the job that you're doing. You, you There's all those things that go with just getting into the military. Mm-hmm. But after that, yeah, with the National Guard, both Army and Air, it's a joint program. Both the Army Guard and the Air Guard can join the counter-drug program. And every state and four territories have this counter-drug program. So no matter what sort of National Guard you're in, yeah, I think once you're in the National Guard, you could absolutely seek it out. And so many people that I know from the National Guard, including other states and territories, it the program has served as a launch pad, as it has for me into other things it definitely leads to other things i mean if you think about it i didn't get my degree until 2018 but i was working as an analyst at a law enforcement agency since 2014 i mean that's four years of experience working full-time at a law enforcement agency before i even have my degree and i can't think of anywhere else where you could really pull that off I mean, I've heard of dispatchers or records clerks becoming analysts, and that that's great, but they, they have that prior law enforcement sort of experience. And coming into this with, like, no law enforcement experience, yeah, I, I feel very privileged to do what I have done with the counter-drug program. Yeah, and, and you mentioned in the beginning about when you decide to leave school that student loans, right, that that— Oh, gosh, that yeah. aspect. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... yeah, I, yeah, I, so I, I mentioned sort of my financial backing sort of fell out from behind me. What, what it was, so my, gosh, I was 18, 19, and my parents divorced. My dad, he was working for OSU, but then he left and went 
worked for a different hospital. He was working at the hospital at Ohio State. But as an OSU employee, even at the hospital, that meant my tuition was 50% off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was sort of living the dream, right, where you just sort of live off of student loans. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm taking out student loans. And, and at the time, I didn't really feel the need to hustle or work. And, and I, I was young and dumb. I didn't have a great financial mm-hmm. understanding of how these things work. Or I just assumed that that's what everyone does. Everyone gets student loans, right? And mm-hmm. you, you get a job and then you pay the student loans back, right? That, mm-hmm. That's how it yeah. works. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I left school because everything going on with the finances and the personal life, and now my student loans come out of deferment. Oh my gosh! And I was in no position to pay for them. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I mentioned I joined the National Guard, yes, to get back in school, but yes, also to get me in touch with you know the right crowd and the right people to get me on the right track because I, I was off track. I, mm-hmm. I think when I enlisted in the National Guard. I put down Intel analyst as my first choice. That's what I wanted to do for the military. And as they were screening me, we came to finances. And I mean, hey, I I owed student loans. I had a lot of debt. Some Mm -hmm. were very nearly in, I think, three different loans were in collections. Like Mm -hmm. my credit rating was like, 400 <laughs> and they they told me that i can i could not get a security clearance a top secret security clearance so they asked me what my second choice was and i said military police and they said well you need a secret clearance for that so i couldn't even get my second choice <laughs> so i i ended up working in logistics which did not need a clearance but i mentioned i got hired on in the finance office a few months later i think this was march of 2023 or I'm sorry, 2011. So I get back from basic training. It's like August, October. I get in in time to start school that that semester. And then, yeah, I mean, within five, six months, I was hired on full-time by the National Guard. And all of a sudden, I needed a clearance for that job. <laughs> and I had to demonstrate that I'm, I'm on track with these loans and here's some proof of payment. I'm on a payment plan. I'm getting all squared away. Yeah, I mean, that... and that 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 was a big step forward for me who really just had no understanding of finances or the 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 hurdles that you can put in front of yourself when it comes to finances especially in this career field where you do need to worry about things like financial disclosure statements and security clearances and and your your personal life really does come into play when you're being evaluated for these law enforcement positions and yeah you, you you got to keep that in mind. That's just not something some, like me, some 18, 19, 20-year-olds are thinking about. Yeah. Hmm. Let's go on then, and I, I, I want to spend some time talking about you becoming a cyber intelligence analyst. So oh, yeah, there's yeah. A, you know, they, they open up a, a new 179th Cyber Operations Group. And you joined the Air National Guard as an intelligence analyst. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty recent. It It's making national headlines. It's attracting a lot of people and a lot of talent from all over. The Air National Guard, nationwide, they were looking for a site to establish a cyberspace wing, which is... Roughly, it's like it's like an army or Marine Corps terms, a brigade or something. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really big size. It's a really big element, and this would be the first one nationwide in the National Guard. 
And they decided on Mansfield, Ohio is where the 179th airlift wing. So it was a C-130 unit. They would pick stuff up and and move it. (laughs) (laughs) And they are converting from a C-130 unit or have converted just last month. They they officially redesignated the 179th airlift wing as the 179th cyberspace wing. And like I said, yeah, it's attracting a lot of attention. It's making national headlines. The chief of staff of the Air Force has come out to Mansfield, Ohio. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for everyone not familiar with Ohio geography, that's about an hour's drive north from Columbus. So sort of north central there in the state. But yeah, it's a really cool, really exciting opportunity. And after 13 years in the Army National Guard, I transferred to the Air National Guard. And I am slotted to be a cyber intelligence analyst. I wish I could tell you more about the Air Force, but honestly, I mean, this is pretty recent. I I only transferred just this past March. And uh, to be honest with you, Jason, it feels like I've only been in the Air Force since breakfast, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's a very exciting mission. I'm excited for what uh, they're going to be doing. A lot of people, when I tell them this, they're thinking, oh, yeah, cybersecurity is like a really big deal right now. <laughs> and it is. It is. But I, I think that's thinking too defensively. You got to remember, mm-hmm. this is a military unit <laughs> mm-hmm. and we are going to be on the offense. Mm-hmm. We are we are the cyber threat uh, for okay. our for for our foreign adversaries. Awesome. And any more any more specifics i think i'll have to leave to the imaginations <laughs> yeah i see that yeah. <laughs> but i i do find it fascinating you 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 have army experience you talked about the navy and now you have the air force so i mean uh-huh. if you want to finish the round robin you're going to have to get the marines and coast guard in there sometime during your lifetime yeah, I, I'm working on my bingo card, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then let's talk about you going into, well, let's do it this way. Let's let's talk first about you being the threat assessment coordinator, sure. and then we'll get into your consulting company. How about that? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So then in 2022, you join the Ohio Bureau of Workers Comp as the threat assessment coordinator, which is, is, I think, as you mentioned in the prep call, is a, is a unique job for, for an analyst to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I came off of my active duty military orders with the counter-drug program in 2022, in January. So I spent a lot of last year doing a job search for analyst positions. And yeah, I... I interviewed for this position at the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation, and what attracted me to it is that in the state of Ohio, the job is classified as as a public safety intelligence analyst, PSIA. And I said, gosh, I mean, that, that, that's like everybody I've worked with at the Highway Patrol and other state agencies. I know exactly what that position is. Mm-hmm. Jason, I thought I was really familiar with the job description, <laughs> but the job description, and anyone can Google it, uh, the job description, it has two paragraphs. The first paragraph is like all the usual stuff that you would expect. Prepares briefings and reports, you know, combines information from many different sources to produce new actionable information, all that stuff. And then the second paragraph is the one I was not aware of. <laughs> it begins, or at BWC, <laughs> and then it lists all the stuff that I'm doing in my current position as the threat assessment coordinator. So yeah, in the public safety intelligence analyst position, I am the only one in the whole state of Ohio that that second paragraph in the job description applies to. 
and it's pretty new, pretty different, and it's kind of cool, to be honest. Yeah, I, I've i never worked in a job, like an Intel position, where everything I do is so clearly reactive or proactive. <laughs> it's it, it's so clear, it so neatly falls into one of those two categories. On the reactive side, as an analyst, I, I conduct investigations into threats. I, I work as a part of our security team and I investigate threats. I investigate workplace violence. I make, re I make re well, not recommendations, but I, I give my findings to labor relations or human resources to determine what next steps that they need to do on their end based on my findings. As an investigator, I, I interview people involved. I interview witnesses. And it's very interesting for an intelligence analyst to be to go direct and to do that human intelligence collection, you know? And then on the proactive side, I'm constantly evaluating and reevaluating our security measures. I'm on the lookout for any threats to the agency or our facilities or our people. I'm making recommendations on security improvements. I'm working with Ohio Homeland Security and other Homeland Security professionals just to be on the lookout for trends or anything that might affect our business operations. So in, in the private sector, I've come to learn this is called corporate security is what I'm doing, corporate security. And I've also learned that this job, at least in the past, is really like a retired cop job. <laughs> <laughs> so for me to come to it as someone who's not retired from law enforcement, I'm uh, coming to it mid-career, if that and as an analyst, not not as a former cop, I'm coming to it as as an analyst. I think it's really interesting, and I'm hoping that I'm making a difference to the safety and security of the people I work with. Yeah, it's it is. It makes me laugh because there's so many people that I knew that you, they 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 were double dipping, right? They were collecting their pension from their time in law enforcement and now had that next job either in the private yep. sector or consulting or whatever it is. <laughs> and they were just living the good life, collecting two paychecks at once. Oh yeah. So is it strictly like investigating, writing reports, or are you guys doing any like active mock situations where you're, you're testing out your response to a particular threat? Yeah, we so continuity of business operations or the coop or the co-op or whatever, the continuity of operations is something that's sort of in the wheelhouse. We do have to think about, well, what if there's a power outage? What if there's a pandemic? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how, how do we keep this going? So we do uh, work on that and we come up with a plan. Uh, we're actually going to be updating our continuity of operations uh, binder, I think, next year. Uh, so in the coming months. And I believe when COVID happened, there was no plan for like a pandemic. Working from home, at least at this agency, was not in the cards. <laughs> there, there was no plan. So it just was not conceived of. So I, again, coming to this from as an analyst and thinking about these low probability, high impact possibilities and scenarios and, and maybe even doing tabletop exercises with some of the senior leadership. I think that would be a really cool, like fun idea uh, that maybe hasn't been tried before. Sort of give them the the information drops. All right, here's the situation. <laughs> and just go around the table. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And uh, yeah, I, I think there's room for that for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I once applied for a job in Tennessee. I didn't get the job 
but part of the task was to travel around Tennessee and assessing vulnerable spots for threat assessments. So anywhere in Tennessee that may be a target of a terrorist act that would be in play. And so you would have certain places, certain sites in Memphis, you have certain sites in Nashville and then Knoxville or Chattanooga and and just dealing with all the different varieties of weak points that terrorists could could attack. And it, it, it was just like, I'm sad that I didn't get the job because I really do think it's a fascinating topic and it would have been just so much to learn about the infrastructure and just different vulnerable spots and 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 just assessing each point yeah yeah absolutely yeah it was definitely eye-opening for me uh coming into this position um because i i had worked i I talked about the highway patrol and then i was at the ohio board of pharmacy after that for a little over four years i i had never heard of any sort of state employee doing anything like this um yeah yeah, i mean it was totally new for me Mm -hmm. uh but it 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 reminded me a lot of a psychology class that i had to take as a part of my degree in security and intelligence and it was like the psychology of security or the the psychology of fear is what it was Mm -hmm. and sort of really understanding what makes people feel safe Um, and I've since come to understand that security and I'm being very specific with that term. People often say safe and secure and it sounds redundant, but they are different things. Safety is protection from accidents, Mm -hmm. unintentional harm, whereas security is protection from attacks, which is intentional harm. And whatever you're trying to protect your assets, whatever assets you're trying to protect, they're security is an objective reality your asset can objectively be secure or you can assess it to be secure but if your assets are people there's the subjective side of security too which i think is so fascinating that security is a reality but it's also a Mm -hmm. feeling the worst case scenario is when someone feels secure but they're not objectively secure (laughs) you know and it's really interesting to sort of think about security issues in sort of this logical sort of way and trying to remove any sort of fear or anxiety from your mind, just like any good analyst would try to remove bias and try to remove that illogical thinking and to think about these things beyond fear. Think about these things in a very logical, coherent way. And then the real trick is communicating and convincing other people to get on board with your ideas. But yeah, I think being real in reality, objectively secure is my number one priority. And once you know, part of me wants to just say, hey, I, I don't give a flying flamingo about your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure you're safe. But the flip side of that coin, Jason, is that fear or anxiety, it's kind of the same thing. It weighs on your body. So feeling safe, feeling secure is also very important. So sometimes I just have to do do things that show that we as an agency are doing things sometimes, <laughs> even if in the back of my mind, maybe I don't know necessarily if it's objectively making our people more secure or not. 
yeah, I mean, it's this sort of constant balancing act between making sure people are really in reality secure and making sure people feel safe and secure. Because fear or anxiety, it does weigh on the body. There are physiological reactions to fear and anxiety, and and it, it becomes real. Yeah. You it's know, very interesting. It, rem it reminds me of different studies that they've done at police departments and at cities where they will do citizen surveys and compare it to the actual crime rate and how sometimes you might have an area with a high crime rate thinking that, oh, these the citizen surveys are going to come back with a high level of fear. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes the, there's a huge police presence that they see during the day, and that makes them feel safe when they're out and about. And they're not necessarily out and about at night when maybe some of these crimes are taking place. So they don't match. And at the same yeah. token, on the other side, is you could have an area that is crime rate wise is relatively safe, but citizens will report not seeing enough cops out, not enough police presence as an example, and then say that they don't feel safe. So people are so fickle that <laughs> it's really <laughs> hard, hard to satisfy them, right? And that's, it's, especially if you're a police chief, that you're, you're working to lower the crime rate and all this other stuff. And then you, you, you see a situation where people, even with, in the areas with low crime, you're telling them that you don't feel safe. So it can be frustrating, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the textbook example is the creation of TSA after 9-11 and mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the foundations of the whole Department of Homeland Security. I mean, on the one hand, DHS was kind of a bunch of organizations that were already existing, sort of brought under mm -hmm. one umbrella. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the obviously there were nerves about flying and just fears mm -hmm. about flying. And so the objectively secure side of things could private security or airport security have done the same job? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if it's brought under a national umbrella and this whole new agency and with all this motivation and, and sky marshals are new, and I think at the time they actually had the highest physical fitness standards out of any federal agent. <laughs> Was it necessary for objective security? No. But did it make people feel a lot safer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it had real consequences. It, it probably saved or accelerated the return to normal for the aviation industry in this country. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you got to acknowledge the real effects of the subjective side of security. Yeah. And I think it was too. It, it was, it was fascinating because there are some times when you will see a customer and might get irate with, with a government employee. If you're yeah. at the post office or you're at the, or something like that. And you just, see the situation play out where maybe there's no sympathy for the government worker. I remember yeah. the first time I flew on a plane post 9-11 and this was after the, the shoe bombing. Oh, and yeah. the, like the, it was like they had just implemented the you taken off your shoes. And I remember there was a lady in front of me that did not want to take off her shoes and it was zero tolerance. It was yes. like the, the person said, just raised her hand 
and somebody else came over and took that woman off to the back room. <laughs> it was like she was removed. She was removed from yeah. the line. No questions asked. And I think everyone, I don't think anybody behind us was going to complain about taking off their shoes. But yep. it was like very swift. And that's not normally what, what I see, as I would say, in some of the other government offices. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's just something about an army of these bright blue shirts uh, at security checkpoints. It, yeah. And, you know, there's a security writer by the name of uh, Bruce Schneier who wrote, I think, in his book, Beyond Fear, that came out about 2002, 2003. He, he talks a lot about, he calls it security theater, mm-hmm. <laughs> just doing things to increase the feeling of security when it objectively doesn't even make you more secure. <laughs> yeah. Staying on the subject of airlines, yeah. I went to Chicago last year and got flew in, landed in Chicago and got my bags and they had situated the the turnstile where you got your luggage so there was only one way in and one way out. Mm-hmm. And when I left, there was a security guard there checking tags to make sure that your luggage matched, you had a tag and it matched the luggage. And which is the first and only time I've ever seen that ever. Hmm. But I concluded that they must've had some kind of issue with people <laughs> coming in and stealing people's luggage. Yeah, the, and I, I, I don't know how much that diverted folks from doing that, but it was still a like a security checkpoint-ish type thing mm-hmm. that people went through to make them feel safe. Yeah, I, I would say that's a good analytical assessment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. So, all right, let's move on then to your consulting company, Essie. Yeah. And yeah. so what is Essie? <laughs> well, I had worked in government for most mm-hmm. of my working life. So starting a business was something new for me. It was SC Bennett and his Associates, mm-hmm. LLC. Mm-hmm. But I got to working with that name. I'm like, man, that, that that's a mouthful. So I got a registered trade name. I just call it Essie, E-S-I-E yeah. <laughs> for short. So Essie, yeah, I, I offer training and consulting on a contract basis. And it's really just more of a side job, but it, it's so far so good. One of my collateral duties, I guess you could say, with the National Guard's counter-drug program was working as the training manager. And I became the training manager for my region of Ohio in 2019. Uh, and then, of course, there was a shutdown in 2020 with COVID. Um, so it fell to me to figure out how we're going to train all these different analysts who are working at all these different agencies with different missions and different capabilities. And how can we, in some measure, some way, train them and train them remotely when some people don't even have like a work computer they can take home with them? Yeah, so that that was the challenge, and I somehow got through it. We standardized training and within our own region, mm-hmm. and that was a group of maybe 15 analysts. And the way the Ohio National Guard program worked, we had the state divided up into three regions. And mm-hmm. yeah, I got tapped to implement this new training program nationwide. I mean, I've always loved training. My, mm-hmm. it, It's always been something that I've always thought was fun to do. And just to sort of spark some inspiration in in others. So, yeah, I started a little company as a side job, and I I can do like bespoke training. If there's a department that wants some special specialized training, I've 
recently been contracted through NW3C. Worked with uh, Randy Stickley and oh, him. He's, okay. yeah, he, he's recently moved on mm-hmm. uh, from NW3C, pursuing greener pastures. But uh, yeah, I, I met him. He was my trainer in a class, I think in 2019. And he was teaching in person in Ohio. And that's how I met Randy. And we just sort of stayed in contact ever since. And yeah, I have uh, I've contracted with them and I'm teaching intelligence writing and briefing. I'm teaching NW3C's FIAT class, the Foundations of Intelligence Analyst Training, and I'm teaching to a national audience, which is uh, pretty cool. So aside from that, just working through maybe consulting or working with departments who want to create uh, an intel unit or establish an intel intel unit or improve their intel unit, that's something else that I offer also. And again, just because I have so much experience through the National Guard program working with all these different analysts at all these different agencies, federal, county, local, state, in all these different analysts and agencies with different abilities and missions. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a great side hustle, and uh, I'm happy to do it. So one of the things with law enforcement analysis, and this is a topic that I've kind of been on a little bit recently here, is just trying to have some more hands-on training. And yeah. to have it less be less lecture and and just be able to be as an analyst have training to take home and implement. I think you had a you had a fascinating point yesterday when we talked about this a little bit. Is the challenge is as you just mentioned, you have different jurisdictions, you have, have different tasks, you've got different functions of all these these analysts and even different tools. And so how the question then becomes, how do you create a training that is is going to be beneficial across the board when the analysts are so different? Or I guess take it another way is are there did have you found that there are some common core function skills that you can teach that will travel across the board? Yeah. Yeah. Skills based training is a really tough thing to achieve for a class of analysts. You could probably do like a small class, like a workshop Mm -hmm. or something with like five or six, if they're like from the same department and they're all working with the same tools. But let's say you get up to like classroom size, let's say you get 30, 40 students or you're teaching online or some webinar or something. I mean, how can I teach you to go hands-on and do something working remotely or even if we're in person, how can I like walk you guys through how to use a specific program or tool or to make something or, all right, everyone, we're going to take this data set and we're going to import it here and follow along. And mm-hmm. I mean, ha- half the class wouldn't keep up and it, it, it's very difficult to do. It is a challenge, I think, in analyst training right now is how, how do you get the right depth? How do you get that hands-on skills-based training Uh, And as you say, Jason, something that they can learn and they can use and they can take it back with them to their agency and implement it and say, hey, check out what I learned. I learned how to build this awesome chart. And I think it'd be perfect for this case that we got going on. Yeah, that's really difficult to do. And that's just a matter of balancing breadth and depth. If it's too skills based or if it relies too heavily on like a certain program or something or a certain type of case, not everyone has that type of case. Not everyone has that mission. Or if it's 
based around software or a program, not everyone has access to that. So it is difficult to build training that is skills-based, that does teach you something like that, but is broadly applicable to everyone in the training. That, that That's a tough challenge in law enforcement training. So you asked me for some examples. So some things that I think are good to just generally learn and take back that are hands-on. Writing and briefing is always good. It's always important. Mm-hmm. Any sort of communications class, again, communication is a skill. And mm-hmm. as a skill, you can practice communication. You can hone that craft. And honestly, it's one of my favorite topics. Like as an analyst, like that's your creative outlet, right? You are making something. <laughs> you are crafting a message. You are analyzing your audience and you know their needs inside and out. And you hit a, a home run, slam dunk with, with whatever message you've crafted. I mean, that's just the best feeling in the world when when your customer makes a decision based off something you've written, even if it's a text message. You know what I mean? So yeah, any sort of like skills-based I would start with communication. Communication is a skill and it's something that you can practice in a classroom setting that would be broadly applicable to all analysts. Another skill I think would be, and this is probably trickier to get hands-on, so to speak, but broadly speaking, I would say thinking, but how do you get hands-on with thinking? I would say structured analytic techniques would be a great way to learn analyst thinking. Even if you don't sit down at your agency and have a, all right, we're going to have a brainstorming meeting or whatever structured analytic technique you want to choose. Even if you don't sit down and like actually do that, attending a class where you do, I mean, you're going to be a great analyst when you go back to your agency. You'll learn all about biases and how these structured analytic techniques are intended to overcome bias. You'll be a, a... an analyst who is able to think about mm-hmm. these law enforcement situations in, in a much clearer way. So if I had to pick maybe two examples, I, I would say structured analytic techniques and communications. Those are probably two that could be skills-based that you can take back to your agency. All right. Good. All right. How about a, a hot take, an unpopular opinion? You got one of those? Yeah, I, I would say so. And, and I don't know how popular or unpopular it would be. When I was on the counter-drug program, we talked a lot about interdiction and working with the highway patrol, but really that was only half my time with the National Mm -hmm. Guard. The other half, again, eight years in total, the other half, I was with the Ohio Board of Pharmacy, and we would go after pill mills and doctors. Anything that you can do with a prescription that's bad, we we, we were all over it, whether it's a pharmacy, a doctor, a patient, whatever. We were all over it. But in Ohio, we also regulated or implemented Ohio's medical marijuana program or had a big hand in it. So my hot take is regarding medical marijuana (laughs) or the legalization nationwide of medical marijuana. I, I would have to say that no medicine, marijuana or not, should ever be made a medicine because people voted to make it a medicine, whether it's a legislature, a population, you, you should not vote to make something, anything, medicine. I I didn't get to vote whether or not oxycodone became medicine, right, Jason? Mm-hmm. And and we we've ended up with this patchwork of legality, different legality, different jurisdictions. We ended up with this patchwork public policy towards mm-hmm. marijuana. Mm-hmm. In, in my opinion, and only my opinion, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, w- I have got to say that I would love to see the FDA step in and at the federal level either m- do the research, do the clinical trials, and either make marijuana a medicine or not. It, it's not fair to law enforcement. It's not fair to the citizens of this country to have such a crazy patchwork of all these different laws and regulations from state to state. So that is my hot take. I think we need to clean that up, and that would help law enforcement um, a great deal, and it would clarify things for the U.S. citizens nationwide. Yeah, that is a different take. I didn't know where you were going with that. Um, (laughs) I mean, well, hey, if I'm sure Pfizer has a pill that you can take that's marijuana based, and then, but. That would be a whole other ball game there. It's fascinating when you said it the way you said it, because you are right. Either it's medicine or it's not. It's not the opinion of the public. <laughs> so Exactly, right? It, it's right. crazy. Like, if, if you truly think about it as medicine. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and side note. I, I don't think any medicine should be smoked. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very happy I live in a state where, where our medical marijuana program does not allow for combustion as an approved yeah. form, but some do. And and again, we got to clean that up. We, we, we can't exist in this sort of patchwork existence where it's, I mean, it's still illegal at the federal level. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I mean, we, I think I think we really need to clean this up. Yeah, it just makes me wonder. Could you imagine if we took a vote on whether we were going to wear masks or not? <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a that's a whole ball of wax there. So, yeah. Uh, all right. We'll leave that be. And let's go on to personal interest as we finish up the interview. And sure. so you are a dad. And, yeah. and uh, your wife is deployed, so mm-hmm. you are the dad taking care of the two small children, six and three years old. And it certainly reminded me of my situation years ago when, when my wife got a new job and moved to the new job. And for a couple of years there, we were traveling back and forth, and uh, I was taking care of a three-year-old and a six-year-old. So I'd certainly the challenges of being a, a father, a single father, or however you want to want to put it, taking care of the two small children is a, certainly a, a quite a task and a, and a unique experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, the National Guard, as I've already discussed, it's given me so much. It also gave me a wife. <laughs> I, I, I met my wife in the military, and my wife is currently deployed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm at home right now with my six-year-old and my three-year-old, and we are living life. And <laughs> the, the kids are alive. My wife's plants, maybe not so much. Um, <laughs> she, she's the green thumb uh-huh. Me not 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 so much. So I'm I'm, I'm struggling with the plants. But yeah, it is yeah. an experience. It is an experience. Uh-huh. I think it definitely helps that I am in the National Guard also. So I kind of get it, mm-hmm. and I I can also look forward to getting her back one day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I, and I spent time in Ohio, so I know what it's like. Yeah. That unfortunately, not every male restroom has changing tables. Oh, gosh, so yeah. I have some quite uh, stories of changing the kids on various spots in men's bathrooms. Oh, so. yeah, for sure. Yeah, my, my three-year-old is not yet potty trained. That, that's a whole different topic. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you got to think hard before you decide to leave the house by yourself with two, two young kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's probably not easy 
for mother or father, but it is certainly a unique experience. That's for, right. Yep. For, for us. So, all right. You are an Eagle Scout. And yes, you mentioned yeah. that you were only asked one time in one interview about your Eagle project. So I want to make it at least twice in your <laughs> career that you were asked about your Eagle project and uh, what you did. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. This is the second time that I've been asked in a professional setting uh, about my Eagle project. So as I was super into scouts, I, I was a super scout. My first job was with the Boy Scouts, even. I was te teaching wilderness survival merit badge at a summer camp. Uh, so again, t teaching, I'm, I'm always teaching. Yeah, I, they always say, hey, make sure you put that on your resume. That, that's going to look good on a resume that you're an Eagle Scout. And n I'm not joking, no one. <laughs> Not a single person has ever asked me about being an Eagle Scout except for one job interview, and that was the job interview for the counter-drug program with the National Guard. It, it was a military board. There were five or six people on this board all on one side of the table, mm -hmm. and I'm on the other side of the table. And we're wrapping up, very formal interview. There's It's set questions, very standardized, and you're graded on the questions, I think, like one through five. So we all wrapped up, and the lieutenant colonel, the president of the board, he asks me, well, I think that about wraps it up, and I hear this sort of <clears throat> from the end of the table. Mm -hmm. He says, excuse me, sir, this sergeant, all the way down at the end of the table, he sort of raised his hand and said, sir, can I ask one more question? And the whole rest of the table, who all outranked this guy, <laughs> they all sort of look at him like okay <laughs> like this is weird <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh he says so sergeant bennett what i see here you're an eagle scout what was your eagle project <laughs> and i was taken aback <laughs> i was like finally <laughs> yeah so i i was 17 years old and working on my eagle project it's a service project you sort of have to lead and manage and i there was i so our, our Boy Scout troop, it met at a VFW post, a, a veterans organization, and they had this whole sort of area between a creek and the sort of back parking lot. They sort of had an event space where they did like weddings and stuff, mm -hmm. which is where our troop met every week. But there was this sort of like ugly, overgrown, just covered in brush and garbage, and my Eagle Project was clearing it out. And planting grass, making it usable space. And I'm thinking they could really use this space. They got weddings, people could take pictures and all sorts of stuff. And it, it's, it is kind of nice. It's like right next to this like babbling brook, you know. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that was my Eagle project. I took a small piece of land, I cleaned it up and put a little path that went down the middle. And that was that. And I think he was pretty, I think he thought that was pretty cool. Uh, it later turns out, as I got to know the guy, since I got, I got hired and he trained me. So I got to know the guy. And his name's Tom Dewey. Mm -hmm. And I, I found out he's super involved in Boy Scouts as a Boy Scout leader. And his mm -hmm. his kids were going through the Scout program. So I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, yeah you're right, Jason. I, I <laughs> was never asked except for one time. And the one time was the job interview that got me hired in my first job as an analyst. There you go. That full circle there. And that, so I, and I, my son, I have mentioned on this show too, is currently working on his Eagle project too. And yeah, I, have, yeah. I have volunteered for scouts for years now. So, all right, Steve, I do want to just mention that you're a good student of analysis. Like you, you've talked about the different experiences that you had. You talked about working on your bachelor's. You went on to get a master's degree and 
you read up and you study nonfiction current events. And that's just a good thing to be is to be well read and up to speed on on current events. And as I I do this job as a podcaster for law enforcement analysts, I I've kind of have this list of things of what I lacked as an analyst and and certainly things that I know that I had my deficiencies on. And that was like current events was one of those things. Like I don't necessarily like to read up on on current events and, and whatnot. I, when my time, when I punch out the clock, I do not want to watch crime shows or real life documentaries or the news or anything to that thing. I'd rather go do something else. But for you, I, I think the, the path that you have taken certainly has enriched your your career. So I just wanted to give you kudos for for all that you accomplished and for for being such a good student of analysis. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I, and I appreciate that. And I think as I've explained, it is a long and winding path. So yeah, I, I feel very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. And I really do love what what I do. So yeah, I, you could almost say I do it for fun. I, I do it in my free time. <laughs> there you go. All right, yeah. let's move on to words to the world. This is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. Steve, what are your words to the world? If you want to be an analyst, or if you have any sort of interest in this field or improving your situation or status in this field, my advice to your listeners would be, and I've already mentioned it earlier, but keep working hard to get closer and closer to what you want to be doing. And every step closer, you will be happier that, that you are that much closer. Don't don't look at your goal way off in the distance and think, gosh, how am I going to get there? And just focus on the next step. We, we began, Jason, just by talking sort of about my journey and I sort of made the first step and that led to many more steps. I, I joined the National Guard, then I got hired, and then I joined the Honor Guard, and then there I was in a snowy cemetery and I was getting recommended for a job as an analyst and, and somehow I just sort of found my way. So words to the world, yeah, d don't be afraid to say yes to opportunities. You don't know where it's going to lead and your opportunities may just lead you to where you always wanted to end up anyways. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Steve. Thank you hey. so much, and you be safe. Jason, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.